Welcome to our latest edition of The Third Wheel, a podcast from Herbert Smith Freehills on all things ESG. Regular listeners will have been expecting podcast hosts Tim Stutt and Mel Debenham, but this is a very special takeover edition by our Employment and Industrial Relations team. My name is Olga Klinchak and I'm an Executive Counsel in our Perth office with a focus on advisory and disputes work. And I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Nerida Jessup, Special Counsel in our Sydney office, specialising in work health and safety issues, crisis management and risk reduction. Today, we'll be discussing how organisations are looking to shape work and workplace culture so that our jobs are good for our mental health, which leads me to our expert guest, David Burrows, Chief Mental Health Officer for Westpac Group. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. David has a 20-year international career as a strategist, consultant and psychologist working across multiple industries with career experience across clinical, military, organisational and community psychology domains, so a great range of experience. David specialises in workplace climate and behaviour, early intervention and prevention of workplace mental ill health and supporting vulnerable customers. The podcast usually begins with our asking our guest for a personal reflection. So, David, can I ask you, why is ESG important and what does it mean to you? I'm not going to say that I'm an expert in ESG at all. It's actually not a term that I use on a daily basis. Um, so I, I don't think I've actually got an adequate response to for you in and around that. Um, uh, apart from the old Wikipedia one around uh, <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking at notion of social responsibility and what we do and, and the, are we doing the right thing or not. Okay, well, David, um, I've heard you speak in the past and and one of the things that's resonated with me, which I think is a really positive place to start, is that work is good for our mental health and I'm sure that there's volumes of research published on the topic, but I was just wondering for the non-psychologists out here, is there kind of an elevator-style pitch version of of that proposition that that you could could give us? Yeah, there is. Um, Think about how much time do you spend at work? Too much. Like <laughs> it's such a proportion of your day and of your life. Um, what do you get from work? Sure, you get a paycheck, which is really important for fulfilling the necessities of life. So, the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs: food and shelter. To have quality food and shelter in Western society, you need a, re- a reasonable income. So, there's the income piece there. But people get a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. Often their identities derived from work. They get structure and routine. They have a sense of mastery where they get to apply their trade. They get a level of agency and control over what they do. And if you look at all of those things, they're actually foundational for people's mental health. Social connection, where do we get a lot of our social connection is work as well. So I like the notion that good work is good for people and the health benefits of good work agenda. But if you get sort of pop the hood and look beneath the surface of your job, it's not just a paycheck. It's a whole lot of other things that are actually you know, determinants of mental health outcomes as well. We know in the long-term unemployed, we often see high levels of mental health distress. And that sort of also sort of highlights just the importance of, of work from a mental health and wellbeing perspective. Okay, amazing. That's such a great answer. And I think, I mean, when you put it like that, it feels really intuitive, doesn't it? Um, but I guess one of the things that we, we're, we're talking about mental health to to executives, to, to boardrooms, you know, almost on a daily basis. It's what everybody wants to talk about. And we have seen, particularly over the last few years, we've just seen report after review, you know, we've had the Productivity Commission report, we've had the Respect at Work report, we've had various other reports into, you know, bullying, workplace violence, kind of workplace cultures. And really kind of pieced together, it paints a, you know, kind of a troubling view at times. Um, 
the Boland Review, which was a, a review into the safety laws, which was released a few years ago, you know, the, the comments in relation to, to mental health were that, you know, it seemed to be that the, the rates of psychological injury were rising. So if we accept that premise that work is good for our mental health, you know, what's kind of, what's behind this? What's behind what we're reading? So I think what's behind it is the way in which we've been approaching workplace mental health for the last 20 years is wrong is the focus has been fixing the person rather than fixing the workplace. It's looking at resilience. It's looking at uh, mental illness awareness. It's looking at, you know, programs and initiatives and things or where we almost outsource our organisational responsibility to design work well and understand those factors in the workplace that have the potential to cause harm to people's mental health. Even if you look at things like bullying and harassment, it's not necessarily always driven through people with malicious intent. It's often workplace factors like excess job demands or poorly managed change or incivility that has become normative that lead to the emergence of those sorts of issues. But the whole sector, in the whole workplace mental health sector for a very long period of time has been driven through, uh, if you've got an EAP, we can outsource responsibility and deal with this person's symptom which creates what I call a tertiary cycle of despair in that we never actually get beneath the surface and deal with those causal and contributory issues because EAP simply is structured in a way that doesn't enable us to do that. We also see things like um, landmark days that raise a whole lot of awareness and focus the attention on who is vulnerable, but you just don't see the initiatives that get beneath the surface and understand why work might make some people vulnerable. So this is where I think the notion of psychosocial risk and the influence of workplace culture and workplace behaviour and job design, we're actually at a tipping point right now where yeah. we've got this opportunity, it's largely driven through COVID and people working in ways in which their jobs are not designed, to rethink the way in which we're working. That's, um, I mean, that picks up on a real shift I think we're seeing as well. Um, part of that I think has been driven by, you know, in, in the space that I work, which is uh, safety, you know, there is now an expectation that employers will take this, um, apply safety thinking to psychological safety. You know, I, th I think that some of the challenges that maybe in, in applying that thinking is, you know, if I look at a piece of machinery, you know, I, I'm not an engineer, but intuitively, I, I know that guarding works, you know, it, it makes sense just intuitively. Um, I think in, in applying that safety thinking to psychological safety, it seems less clear, you know, it seems that for some work and some workplaces, it's, it might be more challenging to design, you know, risk out of, of workplaces and out of work. So I guess my question to you is, you know, if I'm a if I'm an executive and I, I know what my, my physical risks are and I understand what systems we're applying, I can walk the floor and I can see if those systems are being applied. I know what to look for. If you were an executive or you were sitting on a board in an organisation, you know, how would you kind of, walk the floor, so to speak, what would you look at? What 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 do you see in organisations that are getting this right? So you can look at your existing human resource, work health and safety data as sort of indicators of the psychological health of your organisation. So incident rates, grievance rates, psych injury rates, cost, severity, duration of psych injury claims, uh, turnover, accrued leave, your sentiment data. I mean, most organisations actually have a really vast data set that they're possibly not even tapping into. Yeah. And I think that's one of the that's one of the real challenges we have there is people don't know what to look at. Yeah. So what am I actually looking for? Um, 
there are a huge array of um, psychosocial risk assessment tools and things out there at the moment. But the challenge I see with a lot of those is they have a lot of concept confusion. They confuse psychological safety with psychological health and safety. They don't necessarily look at how do you remediate issues that you see? Like they're good at pointing out what the problem might be, but then how do I solve the actual problem? It's not a common capability set. Mm. So I think one of the big challenges we've got at the moment is that we know we need to be doing these things, but the the level of capability within human resources and work health and safety to be able to identify and mitigate psychosocial risk is just not there. Yeah. The the capability required to do um, job design is just not a common capability set. And, and look, I blame the tertiary institutions to some extent there because, you know, I've had dozens of organisational psychologists work for me before. They're not necessarily trained in psychosocial risk or job design. They might be really good at assessment and development centres. I've had loads of clinical psychs work for me before and they might be really good at helping someone who's become vulnerable but they don't necessarily understand psychosocial systems. So it's almost this sort of specialty that's emerged mm. that is the knowledge and capability base is, is held by a relatively few number of people. And I think this is something that's a real challenge for some organisations because you're almost holding a mirror up to the way in which human resources might be functioning and saying, hey, that's not quite right and you might need to do these things but then people are not necessarily trained on what you might need to do to remedy some of these situations that they're seeing. How do I resolve incivility? How do I redesign work? How do I address job demands? How do I look at the psychosocial impact of change? You know, what is the role of psychological safety, the interpersonal space, is a protective mechanism for people's mental health and wellbeing? This is just, these aren't new concepts, but they're new to corporates. Yeah. They've been around for psychological safety, which is... Um, are people free for interpersonal risk taking? Has been around since 1965. So we're not. This is not new. Um, but they're just not the sorts of things that have been that have been taught. Um, which I think is one of the reasons why there's there's still reluctance and fear around. If I ask the right question, if I ask these questions, how do I solve the, the things that I find? Uh, it's it's a real challenge. And and outside of Westpac, I'm an independent advisor to some of Australia's biggest companies. And I can tell you now that so many are grappling with this idea around what do I look for, what do I do, and and the the actual reality is is what's popular doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work. And there's yeah. a lot of really popular, really emotive programs out there, things that have really what I call high visibility, low impact. Mm. Is they suffer from what I call the anecdotal fallacy, which is oh that felt good, therefore it must be good. Well, show me your psychosocial metrics that told me that that actually changed somebody's experience of work. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty thin on the ground. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks to that issue of, you know, I think corporates are really looking to make evidence-based decisions, but there's, you know, there seems to be, um, you know, a bit of a gap in, in how to actually identify where we're applying our resources and, how, you know, how can we make sure that what we're doing is working and if there's if there's other things that we should be applying yeah. our time and attention to. And it's a very provider-driven marketplace. So it's a lot of the providers producing a lot of the literature, unless you're really digging into the academic stuff. And the things that are actually put forward as being evidence-based that are not is probably nine out of ten. 
Very few people know the difference between evidence-based and evidence-informed. Um, and there's a lot of grandiose claims when it comes to workplace mental health and the efficacy of programs. So it's, it, it, I actually think it's, it's a real challenge for corporates who are trying to work out what is legitimately going to work for my challenges that I've got within this team or within this organisation. It's, 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 it's certainly not a simple space. Yeah, not at all. Um, and I, I, I also just wanted to ask as well, you know, kind of leaving aside safety, compliance, and compliance issues, you know, what's the what's the business case here? You know, what what are the benefits for business in in applying their focus, attention, and resources to get this right? Uh, benefits are enormous. Um, in fact, when I look at workplace mental health, and what do we need to have a mentally healthy workplace? It's actually what do we need to have a high performing workplace? It's when when I'm talking to a board of directors around a mental health strategy, it's not a mental health strategy. It's a performance, productivity and mental health strategy. It is how we improving somebody's experience of work. If somebody's having a good experience of work, if they're subjected to supportive leadership behaviour, if their jobs are designed well, if they're stimulated by the work they're doing and they've got the right degree of mastery and agency over what they're doing and they've got the right relational support and the demands upon them are tolerable, they're thriving. You know, I mean, this is optimising people's work performance that just happens to also optimise their mental health and wellbeing as well. So the yeah. business case is profound. Um, a lot of the business cases that I see are the the cost reduction, mitigation, you know, sort of approaches rather than really understanding that good work is is not just good for people's mental health and wellbeing, but if we design work well, it it drives performance. You know, people don't want to leave an organisation where they're set up to to thrive. Yeah. And I think there's quite a lot of synergy there, David, with what you're saying also with the diversity and inclusion space. I mean, if we're talking about moving from an individual focus to more of a systems-focused approach, it's really the move from diversity, making sure there's diverse boards, to inclusion, genuine inclusion. And if we're talking about high-performance culture, you know, bring, allowing yourself to bring or allowing employees to bring their best self to work, their full self to work, really drives that high-performing culture as well. Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of synergies. Um, and, and, you know, boards and... Uh, business leaders are looking at how to uh, cut through the, the dis discourse around um, racial discrimination, gendered violence and so on, and see how can they really make an impact to the safety and inclusion of their workforce. So can you speak to the relevance of diversity and inclusion to psychological safety? And what's your advice to a leader to really make genuine impact in that way? It's another area that I'm not going to say I'm an expert in, in the diversity <laughs> and inclusion space. Um, I often look at diversity and inclusion through things like the lens of neurodiversity. Mm. I look at it through the gendered lens. Um, I look at it through uh, the ageing workforce lens and what are we doing from from a youth lens and, and those sorts of things. So I'm certainly not a diversity and inclusion expert. But what sits beneath a whole lot of these things, though, is are people having a positive experience of work? It doesn't mean it's not stressful. It doesn't mean they're not stretched. It doesn't mean as if they they don't have a whole lot of stuff that they've got to do, but it's around that positive experience of work. So how are we getting people to have that that positive experience of work? And I think that can apply across every lens and way in which you look at things. Are we giving people the opportunity to flourish and thrive? Mm. And, I and guess are we doing it in a way that's not just paying lip service to it? Because I, I, I get really frustrated with the notion of we just need to raise awareness of all these things. Where's the action? Show me where the action is. And I think that's a really important part of it. 
Yeah, so showing how people will actually feel valued in their roles in performing their work and that value then drives their feeling of well-being. And that's so if you look at the psychosocial hazards now, mm. whatever framework you look at, whether it's the safe work framework or the guarding minds framework or the, the notion of reward and recognition is in there. And that's mm. not just about pay. You know, that is about do I feel as if I'm recognised within this organisation? I think that sort of speaks to the heart of a lot of these a lot of these things as well. Equity and fairness mm. and justice is a psychosocial factor that is inherent within almost every of the international frameworks that I've ever looked at. And I mean, it speaks to those exact things that you're talking about now. It should be an inherent part of work. And when it's not there, that's when we see harm. Yeah, I think that's, I mean... Absolutely right. It's it's in in all of the guidance at the moment, and I think there's such a shift in thinking um, that that there is such an imperative to get this right, and such a shift to to kind of identify how we can just shift workplace culture. Um, and there's that there is a tie in between kind of diversity, looking at you know the whole of our workforce, and I think probably the final issue I just wanted to ask you about kind of ties in with that as well. I think we've talked a bit about um, you know, a psychologically safe workplace and, and you know, designing work, um, you know, w- with that risk management approach. Um, but, but I think mental health, mental illness in particular, is something that will touch all of our lives, whether we experience a serious mental health issue ourselves or, you know, whether we have um, team members or people we care for that um, experience this significant mental health issue. And so I, I think that part of the thinking in this is, how do we how do we make work safe, supportive, uh, keep people in the workplace who uh, who have mental health issues? You know, what what kind of issues are you looking at to design work to to support people who are facing those challenges? So I would argue that the vast majority of people with mild to moderate mental health related concerns are at work, have been at work for a long <laughs> time, and they're quite possibly your highest performance. Is the is the we need to sort of get beyond the notion that um, if you're experiencing a mental health issue, therefore you're incapable or you're broken. Um, most people you can actually manage their mental health concerns quite well. A lot of mental health issues are cyclic. They're not people things that people suffer with on a daily mm-hmm. basis. People often manage them quite well. And I think that what you'll find is that a lot of people are actually already at work and, and flourishing and thriving. You can experience mental ill health and flourishing and thriving at the same time. That actually can happen. And, I mean, if you look at the number of high-profile, overachieving people who've got things like depression, anxiety and bipolar, it's a lot. So I think there's, you know, if you look at those people who do become vulnerable, though, what are the things that we need to do for those people who might have mental health-related vulnerabilities in the workplace? Mm. That is make sure they've got valuable work. Make sure that they are recognised and rewarded. Make sure that we sort of recognise the things that they get from work so that we're actually consolidating and supporting the things that they, that support their mental health and well-being. You know, there was that notion years ago that was quite flawed, which is, oh, you've got depression, go home, get well. You know, that's just a completely flawed way of looking at the sort of these things because what we're doing is we're actually dislocating people from the psychological benefits we derive from work. And so I think that's an important way of looking at it is, is yes, yeah, sure, reasonable adjustments and those sorts of things are important. Recovery at work is really important. But how do we understand and support, you know, what do people get from work and what role does it play in their mental health and well-being? And how can we sort of look at it and think just because you're vulnerable right now doesn't mean you're not going to be a great performer as well. 
I think it's, it's the, the lens in which we look at these things is is really important. Thank you so much. That's a really positive um, note to finish on. And I do thank you for your fascinating insights today, David. And, and thanks to Nerida for taking the wheel with me today. Mel and Tim usually close each episode with an interesting fact um, from the world of ESG. So I thought that this one would be fitting. Whilst David's been a trailblazer as a chief mental health officer, the role of chief happiness officer is taking off in the UK. And the role can involve micro retreats and thoughtful gifts for staff. And it's rooted in evidence-based positive psychological research that yields concrete results. Uh, supported people are calm, hardworking and considerate towards co-workers and customers. Can I um, just say you can't, you can't see David shaking his head. <laughs> so the research in the chief happiness offices, they can actually have the converse effect of what people are actually. Right. So there's a, if you um, encourage happiness, there's a perverse outcome and you create more depression and anxiety. So there's right. a direct relationship between the happiness movement and the increase in depression and anxiety in society. Right. Have a look at the research from Professor Brock Bastian. He's from University <laughs> of Melbourne, and it's the notion of what we call toxic positivity. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So right. it is, that is uh, a really worrisome trend yeah. because if I expect to be happy all the time, it's actually going to yeah. make me more sad. And sad. if we <laughs> understand that experiencing a full range of emotional effect, including your challenging ones, is part of the human experience, yeah. you can actually get people to be much more resilient and psychologically agile. Mm-hmm. So just a little yeah, no, that's word. Be careful around that one. Um, yeah. There's a brilliant book called The Other Side of Happiness. And if you look at Professor Brock Bastian, his research is unequivocal around that. Um, around that. So the Chief Happiness Officer. You're not uh, looking to rebrand. <laughs> no. That's a, a contentious. I love it. You've got to be no, comfortable really... with things that, you know, comfortable with things not being great. Yeah, yeah. Psych- psychological agility. It's actually been identified as one of the top things, capability sets for 2021 and beyond. And it, you know where it's most important? It's most important in the legal profession. <laughs> uh, with you know, all jokes aside, um, yeah. perfectionistic yeah. tendencies yeah. and that link to depression yeah. that we see within lawyers is the same linkage that we have between happiness aspirations and the depression rates with happiness. Incredible. It's around expectations. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. Anyhow, I'll wrap it on. Sorry. No, that's really helpful. I think, um, and it's good that that's, um, you know, that we've pointed out that evidence-based. I think it's a really important point that um, the, you know, striving for happiness is not what we're doing here, you know, and, and setting that up is, is what we're yeah. all looking for. And if we don't achieve it, you know, we've got to be comfortable with adverse events. And I think that's a, you know, that's one of the things about kind of cutting through the data and the literature. We just, you know, we don't have, um, I think there's a lack of understanding of some of these issues and that kind of positivity trend drives some of that, what you called like high visibility, low impact. You know, it yeah. feels good, it looks good. So the positivity research, was a lot of that was driven through the notion of a critical positivity ratio mm. that has now been um, subject to a scientific reversal. Mm. Is they actually didn't just have to, they had to actually retract all of the yeah, research wow. in and around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting one. Anyhow, I, I yeah, no, I think that's useful. And I think, as you say, it's really the lived experience of individuals. We need to be mindful of what their lived experience is, so that then we can ensure that um, they're adequately supported 
where they, they do have those vulnerability, you know, vulnerable moments in their lived experience at work. I've got um, an article on my LinkedIn about yeah. is being happy, make, is trying to be happy making you sad. So I think I've actually got mm. something on my LinkedIn Amazing. if you ever want to have a look at it. Well, is that is that the first time, uh, and I don't know, is this the first time that we've ever had somebody uh, dispute our an undeniable, indisputable fact on the podcast? Fact check. <laughs> told you I'd be controversial. I can't help it. Amazing. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. We look forward to sharing more ESG insights this year. And given we're recording on budget night, you can also check out our latest insights on the Australian Federal Election um, Hub, which is on HSF's website. Thanks so much. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.